do you suppose is the scariest verse in the Bible? The other day it came to my mind what I personally believe is perhaps one of the scariest verses in the entire Bible. Because of the shock effect it will have when the Lord says to people who really thought they were genuine believers, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. While the Bible tells us that in the last days, deception will increase, I think one of the scariest aspects of deception is deceiving yourself, being convinced that you are something that you really aren't. As Mark Twain once famously said, it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Everyone is going through an unprecedented time when medical science and politicians are trying to manage the pandemic crisis. It's a time when many are seeking the Word of God to give hope and meaning to their lives, and there's never been a better opportunity for our ministry. So we want to say thank you to the viewers of Jerusalem Channel who have continued to make our programs possible. With your prayers and support, we can finance the cost to send video streaming around the world. Each week our audience grows and we're even exploring ways to subtitle shows into other languages. So it's with your help that we can bring a good word, the gospel truth through Jerusalem Channel. And especially at this time, please continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. The Lord Jesus warned us to beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. He said, you shall know them by their fruits. Then Jesus added, even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth bad fruit. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.13 that evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's bad enough that false prophets and false teachers are proliferating, but what's especially troubling and scary to me is self-deception, believing that you are saved when, in the end, Jesus will say definitively, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, because I never knew you. Now that scary verse is found in Matthew 7, 23. And depart from me is a phrase of renunciation rooted in Jewish legal traditions used against persons who have been expelled from the community. An equivalent phrase would mean, you mean nothing to me. And the phrase translated as, you workers of iniquity, literally means, you who break the law. Alternative translations are, you evildoers, you lawbreakers. While Christian churches have long rejected the need to follow the ceremonial law of Moses, but the basic laws of morality, ethics, and good conduct laid down as a foundation in the Hebrew Scriptures are not to be rejected, even as many apostate churches tragically are doing. It's disturbing to think that 
One day, Jesus will declare to many professing Christians, people who are believers in name only, that they must depart from him into outer darkness. As tragic as that will be, I want to emphasize that the Bible teaches very plainly that a true believer can have the assurance of his or her salvation without a shadow of doubt. In fact, the Apostle John stated in 1 John 5.13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. John wanted true believers to feel certain that eternal life already belongs to us. A believer's title deed to eternal life is not proven by warm, fuzzy feelings or by church membership, but by promises in the Word of God when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, the Savior. Eternal life is promised in John 3:16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Please remember that. But in Luke 6:46, Jesus also said to the people, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do what I say? So who are the people the Lord will dismiss saying, Depart from me, I never knew you? They are nominally religious in their outward behavior. In other words, they're fake believers. They're self-righteous persons. They're not trusting in Jesus' own righteousness as the Savior to save them. They falsely profess religious dogma without really comprehending what they believe. It's rather like putting all our faith in a flimsy cloth face mask rather than really trusting God to see you through the virus pandemic. Scripture makes it plain that obedience to the Lord is necessary and required. Feigned allegiance will be discovered by the Lord. That's inevitable. So let our lives be consistent with what we say we believe. In short, let's not deceive ourselves. Let's examine what we actually believe to be sure that we're in the faith. In the meantime, everyday believers and unbelievers are wading through a dangerous minefield of deceptions. False prophets are proliferating. First of all, what is a prophet? A prophet is defined in the Bible as someone who speaks divine truths on behalf of God. So a pseudo-prophet would be one who does not speak for God, somebody who is a counterfeit, a heretic, or a deceiver speaking lies and half-truths. False prophets are religious or occult ringleaders whose solutions only offer a band-aid to lightly cover over people's wounds. They're not true healers. They're not true men and women of God. They deceptively say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And unfortunately, many shallow people in the churches prefer it that way because they don't want to be challenged to repent and to live righteous, upright lives. Well, in my lifetime, there have already been many false Christs, and one was a musician named Vernon Howell, an American cult leader who played a central role in the siege in Waco, Texas in 1993. To gain publicity, Howell had legally changed his name to David Koresh, 
professing himself to be the spiritual descendant of King David and the Persian King Cyrus. As the head of the so-called Branch Davidians, which was an offshoot of the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Church, Koresh claimed to be its final prophet. And instead of Israel, he falsely claimed that the prophecies of the book of Daniel would be fulfilled in Texas and that his community was the Davidic kingdom. Government agents forced an end to a 51-day standoff predicated on the charge that Koresh was abusing children. His right-hand man shot and killed Koresh and then committed suicide with the same gun. Another epitome of a false prophet and a false Christ was an authoritarian religious cult leader named Jim Jones, who moved his community to a jungle in South America to avoid media scrutiny. Typically, he named the community after himself, Jonestown, where nearly a thousand persons committed mass suicide in 1978. To investigate claims by troubled family members, an American congressman flew down to Jonestown but was shot and killed. Then Jones himself deceived the inhabitants of Jonestown, including more than 300 children, into dying of cyanide poisoning. This tragedy of religious deception resulted in the greatest single loss of American civilian life, although not on American soil, in a deliberate act until the September 11 attacks of 2001. Following the mass suicide, Jones was found dead with a gunshot wound to his head. So solemnly, Jesus warned us in Matthew 7, 22, many will come to me on that day. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, didn't we drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Think about it. The false prophet David Koresh had claimed that he was prophesying in the Lord's name. And Jim Jones had all the hallmarks of what Jesus described as a false Christ. Jones had won civic and humanitarian awards. He used Bible language to preach about God and claimed to cast out demons. He reportedly performed fake miracles using the organs of dead chickens to mimic healings of tumors. He demanded absolute and total loyalty. He replaced Jesus as the authority figure and went so far to say that he was Jesus. So he was a pseudo-Christ. Unfortunately, not all false prophets are completely unmasked like David Koresh and Jim Jones were. But nevertheless, believers are admonished in Hebrews 5.14 to exercise our senses to discern between good and evil. I think it would be appropriate to explain again what the Bible meant by the idiom, a wolf in sheep's clothing. You see, a shepherd of the sheep wore a garment made of wool, meaning that the false prophet comes dressed like a shepherd. And the title shepherd is used synonymously for a pastor or a religious leader. So the idiom, a wolf in sheep's clothing, more closely means a person dressed in religious garb. For example, Jim Jones wore a clerical collar. Just because a man or a woman wears a clerical collar doesn't mean their doctrine is orthodox or correct. Jim Jones wearing a clerical collar was an example of a wolf in shepherd's clothing. 
One of the duties of a biblically defined watchman is to give warnings, not to debate, but rather to spell out the truth and to warn people against deception. To me, it's scary how so many strange, self-promoting teachers are casually followed by many believers today. If you study the messages of some of these false prophets, you'll notice that they avoid teaching certain fundamental biblical truths, and they feel no compunction about adding to the Word of God or twisting it. They may also use God's own special brands, such as Jerusalem and Israel, to make merchandise of people. We need to ask, are they giving the whole counsel of God from the Bible? Can they say, as Paul said in Acts 20, 26, that he was free from the blood of all men? What did Paul mean by that? He meant that he had not held back anything of God's counsel. Paul had honestly discharged the word of God, even when it was not popular and when it didn't tickle people's ears. So what are we going to do as believers since Paul said evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived? We may think we can easily spot a false teacher, but we're going to have to sharpen our discernment and watch because mankind tends to look upon the outward appearances while God sees hearts. And Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. After all, a tree is judged by its fruit. A good tree will cast off good fruit. A bad tree will cast off rotten or disappointing fruit. We must be fruit inspectors and examine a person's life and the lives of their followers. Sometimes the Lord allows false teachers to be shaken and exposed. Even though an imposter attempts to camouflage himself, the fruit of his or her walk and talk will unmistakably identify who he really is. They have a form, a pretense of godliness, but no genuine fruit. Only fake fruit as wax fruit in a beautiful decorative bowl. Or, for example, you may see some beautiful fruit in the grocery store, but when you bring it home and you taste it, you're surprised and disappointed that it has zero flavor or it's rotten, or inside is just no good. You've been deceived by the outward appearance. We can be sadly disappointed in individuals, but we can't allow them to stop us or to discourage us. If a person is proven to be false, we have to forgive and move on. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we have to declare this by faith in Jesus' name. Tragically, for a season, some believers have actually attached themselves to false teachers and have been defiled and burned by them. It's bitterly disappointing. We need to ask ourselves, what kind of character, what kind of lifestyle does a teacher have? Is the fruit of repentance evident in their lives? Does the teacher keep the commandments of the Lord? Is he or she generous, thoughtful, self-effacing, humble, and kind? Are they willing to suffer persecution? And are they morally clean? Are they covetous? These things can be all so very subtle, but you can also train yourself to spot a false teacher. Furthermore, when you're born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the inner witness of the Holy Spirit is never wrong. So listen to him.
And if you have a check in your spirit, steer clear, because the false prophet knows how to talk the talk but doesn't walk the walk. Inside their hearts are corrupt. When assessing a teacher, an important aspect is to ask, what is their doctrine of salvation? This week I went to lunch in an open-air restaurant and in a corner I noticed that some people had received permission to set up a stall with some books they had written on divine healing. That's one of my favorite subjects, so naturally I decided to have a look. As I examined the books, I was reading the table of contents and the descriptions on the covers. Primarily, I was hoping that the author did not belong to a denomination that claims to be Christian, but is in fact a cult. You see, I was checking for the author's doctrine of salvation. And to my delight, I saw that the books were based upon the Holy Scriptures and not upon the doctrines of certain well-known cults that pervert the Bible doctrines of salvation and healing. We have to reject a lot of teaching that's out there simply because it's so vague and wishy-washy. Positive thinking to the point that souls are taken down the broad road to destruction. Seemingly absent in many churches and among many believers today are sound doctrine and a strong concern for the lost, manifested by a lack of personal evangelism. It's as though many Christians have adopted the doctrine of universalism, which believes that many, if not all, people will ultimately be saved, that all sincere people, no matter what their religion or what they've done, are going to go to heaven. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus and his apostles remind us of the very lostness of the lost, as proclaimed by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, in which he spoke of the reality of hell. And he even warned that many religious people who claim to believe in him will find themselves lost. As our scary text for today says, Matthew 7, 23. Then Jesus said, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you who break God's laws. But it is important today that everybody watching these programs or listening to the podcast can receive an assurance of salvation, especially since the Bible says evildoers will be on the increase. I think a simple illustration can help us to understand who is a true believer and who is not. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and left very dissatisfied, vowing that you'll never go there again? But one day you notice that the place is under new management, and so you decide to try it again. And then you're pleasantly surprised with all of the vast improvements. Well, that's like when a person receives the Lord. He or she comes under new management. When we surrender our lives to the Lord, we become new creatures with new habits. Old things are passe, and behold, all things are become new. God created us in his image, but Satan marred that image due to sin. But when Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, comes into our lives, he rebuilds the image of God in us. And we become new creations because we have a new manager. We're definitely under new management. A false prophet secretly still enjoys sin because he's never submitted his life to God. He's still under the management of Satan. 
Eventually, a string of scandals will be exposed in the lives of false prophets. But a real believer, I'm happy to tell you, no longer enjoys sin. A real believer wants to see others rescued from sin and be saved. A real believer loves people. You can see it in their attitudes and actions. This supernatural love of God is a real proof of salvation. Jesus said, By this shall men know that you are my disciples, because you have love one for another. The New Testament also says we know that we have passed from death into life because we love our fellow believers. Anyone who doesn't love remains in death. But a real born-again believer wants to see people live happy and productive lives. He no longer hates anyone because of his skin color. In fact, a real believer doesn't even see the color of a person's skin, and he certainly doesn't talk about race because race is no longer an issue if it was an issue before he or she was born again. So a real believer loves all people, and if someone offends us, we are able by the grace of God to forgive them. But an unbeliever lives with grudges and is poisoned by sin. It's not wrong for believers to have wealth and to live a happy and prosperous life, but our main interests as believers are transferred from earth to heaven. We become more interested in spending wealth on the kingdom of God than on ourselves. For example, when we hear of a millionaire or a billionaire dying and somebody asks, how much did he leave? The true answer is, he left it all. Whenever I read about a prominent or a famous person dying, the first thing I have to wonder is, what is his or her eternal destiny? Were they saved? Did they store up any treasures in heaven? Or were all of their interests centered only here on earth? Recently, I read that after President John F. Kennedy was inaugurated, he had a meeting with the late evangelist Billy Graham. Mr. Graham had counseled many American presidents over the years. They spoke about world conditions, and Billy Graham told the president that the only hope for the world is the second coming of Jesus, that the Messiah has all of the answers to the world's problems. I believe this, but the president was amazed. Billy Graham explained the Bible doctrine of the second coming, and Mr. Kennedy asked, Does my church teach this? And Mr. Graham replied, I don't know, but it's definitely in the Bible. I'm glad that Billy Graham was always faithful to teach about the second coming. Every believer ought to be faithfully telling the world about it. Certainly the gospel is not all hell, fire, and damnation, but neither is the gospel a doctrine of universal salvation in which a benign God accepts everybody as they are without any need to repent. The gospel is good news of God's grace, love, and mercy to sinners. And whatever delay there may seem to be regarding the Lord's second coming, it's because God has a desire for souls to be saved as many as possible. If we are to be properly motivated to help others, we need to be motivated not only by the love of the Lord, but also by a proper understanding of the absolute lostness of the lost. Oh, Heavenly Father, show us and let us discern what is true and what is false. Let us not be deceived and especially self-deceived. We ask you, Lord, to help us to be more circumspect and careful about who we allow to influence our lives. Let's ask the Lord to lead us into true friendships and ministry associations. 
and to help us to uh, sharpen our discernment, to grow and become more accurate as we listen to the Lord and look for correct character signs in people. And for every person watching or listening today who is a genuine believer, I ask the Lord to assure you that you are not going to lose your salvation. Usually, the lack of assurance in salvation is a misunderstanding of God or the result of bad teaching. But the good news is that you can know God's assurance of eternal life. In fact, the Lord has given many scriptures that support the assurance of salvation. Scriptures based upon the Lord's person and not upon ourselves. Because Jesus is our substitute, he is our high priest and our advocate before God. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus also testified in John 6, 37, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Furthermore, Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus also proclaimed in John chapter 11, where he raised Lazarus from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus asked, do you believe this? And yes, I believe it. Speaking of the assurance of our salvation, the Apostle Paul also wrote in Romans 8, verses 38 to 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Messiah Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Now, if you're not a believer in the Lord right now, I encourage you to read the Bible and to ask God to show you yourself and how you need the Savior. Then I encourage you to call upon Him as Lord while there is yet time. Well, I spend a lot of time ministering through media. That includes uploading lots of material that you'll enjoy browsing through on our website, exploits.tv, which reports on current and end-time events relating to the church and the nation of Israel. At our website and our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site, we offer you a free library of videos 24-7. We also publish a magazine called Exploits. That title is based upon Daniel 11.32, declaring... The people who know their God will be strong and accomplish exploits, meaning we're going to do the works of the Lord in the remaining time before his imminent return. I want you to feel free to share your thoughts with me on the social media, or you can contact us on your phones or tablets through our free Jerusalem Channel mobile app. Well, today in a world where so many people are anxious and lost, We've discussed the scariest verse in the Bible, which shows that many persons are self-deceived. So I want to leave you today with 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 10 and 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Messiah, 
knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. In other words, knowing our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we persuade men. That's why we must work urgently to help as many people as possible to get ready to face God. Amen. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Darg. Shalom and Maranatha.